The Writer's Journey. It's an ocean of experiences and choices that shape and define its path. From childhood, the feel of the pencil in hand as it touches notebook paper, the scent of books at a school book fair, or the hero or heroine of a story that ignites imagination and adventure can propel the writer to take this journey. The desire to know a character leads a writer to make choices that ultimately connect the writer to the page. Like the stars in the sky that seem to float independent of each other, there is a connectivity that forms a constellation. The same is true of a character's journey, but it's also true of the writer's. What connects the light tells the story. On this episode of The Writer's Constellation, we are hearing from author Tessa Fontaine. Her 2018 memoir, The Electric Woman, chronicles her journey of joining America's last traveling sideshow as she is processing the life-altering changes of her mother's debilitating stroke. Tessa's memoir was a New York Times editor's choice, amongst many other awards. Tessa joined us to share her insights on writing the book, her writing journey, and advice for aspiring writers. Okay, welcome Tessa Fontaine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. I wanted to start off by saying I had the great fortune of participating in a lecture you gave during my MFA residency. And your energy and sense of adventure really inspired our class that day. Uh, the day that you were there, your book was hot off the press and it's done so well. And in case our listeners aren't familiar with your book, The Electric Woman, can you give them a brief summary what it's all about? Sure, yeah, and and thank you for those kind words. I had a great time at Converse. Um, yeah, so The Electric Woman, uh, the subtitle is A Memoir in Death-Defying Acts, and um, it follows two primary stories. Um, the first story is about the season I spent as a performer in America's last traveling sideshow. So I learned how to become a fire eater and sword swallower and knife thrower and uh, snake charmer and all kinds of illusions, headless woman, four-legged woman, everything you can imagine, um, all the components of a traditional traveling sideshow. And I did that um, just like with having no skills, no experience, um, unable to do a cartwheel really, and had met a bunch of people who were in the sideshow and kind of got um, obsessed with what they were doing. And they got, I think, annoyed with having me follow them around. And so said like, look, just join us if you want to understand it. And I did. And so the the book chronicles what it's like to be inside the last sideshow and the, and the other folks who are out there who are making that, um, that world their life and carrying on this tradition. Uh, the other main narrative thread is about my family. And um, about two years before the side, during the sideshow, my mom had a, a devastating stroke that left her um, unable to walk or talk. And we really had years of emergency emergencies and kind of she would die and then be resuscitated and she was in the hospital and it just didn't seem like she was recovering. And it was just really, really horrible on so many levels. A lot of other stuff kind of fell apart with my family at the same time. Um, and, and all of that was horrible enough, but then my stepdad made this decision that, um, 
since my mom was probably going to die soon anyway, that they would just uh, go on this trip to Italy. And um, she didn't have a bone flap in her head, so they were going to have to take a train across the country and then get on a boat and take a boat to Italy. And it was essentially a journey that they didn't plan on coming back from and that none of us thought they would come back from. So they were getting ready to leave on this essentially suicide mission. And um, I got invited to join the sideshow, and it seemed like the 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 perfect, most insane thing to go do while this insane thing was happening to my family. Yeah, it was an extremely moving and compelling story, and it's, it was really fascinating. Thanks. And I want to delve deeper into the memoir, but before we do, I want to back up a little bit. And, uh, and the memoir gives such a generous window into your life. It really, it really is amazing. Um, I would like to talk, I'd like to talk a little bit about your beginnings as a writer. When did you start writing and what were some of your early artistic influences? <laughs> yeah, um, I can't actually remember ever not writing. Uh, so I remember being very young, like just, you know, kind of just learning to put sentences together. And I was always writing stories. Um, at first, when I was in elementary school, um, I had the, my teachers had some great incentives. I remember learning when I was like pretty young, like third or fourth grade, like they're like, you can have extra credit if you write poems. And I was like, oh, piece of cake. Great. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, was writing poems and um, writing stories. I remember I started like, like just a totally ridiculously ambitious 10-year-old, I, I thought I could write a murder mystery. And so I like started this novel that was about like a person with amnesia who wakes up in the back of a car and it's full of diamonds. And uh -huh. there's a bad guy named Blade who's there, and, you know, <laughs> just like an amalgamation of probably like, you know, pieces I had picked up from other stories. So yeah, so there, there's the long answer is that um, I, I just always wrote, I, I always loved doing it. It was always part of my life. Um, and I read voraciously as a young person, which I think is true of every writer. I think that's how all of us really get hooked in. And so, um, I mean, early books, I read, I, I obsessively read all the Shel Silver, Silverstein um, poetry collections. I, I love Roald Dahl. I love the Boxcar Children. Um, I loved the um, Nancy Drew mysteries. Um, and, and I sort of just, I don't know, kind of whatever I could get my hands on. Uh, I didn't come from a reading family. I didn't, didn't come from a family that went to college. So it was lots of um, library time and, and just kind of reading whatever I could get my hands on. Yeah, including like Shel Silverstein. And I read all the Roald Dahl books and Nancy Drew books and the Boxcar Children um, and the Madeline Alingle books and... Uh, and all the um, C.S. Lewis books. And so all of those kind of series, classic series. Um, but I didn't come from a family of readers. I didn't come from a, a family of college educated people. So it, it really was kind of a lot of, you know, time at the library and, and just reading whatever I could find, um, including like, you know, finding some pulpy, like really scary Michael Crichton books that I read when I was like nine and just gave myself nightmares. <laughs> but you did indeed come from a very creative family. I did. I came from a very creative family, just not traditionally educated. Yeah. So my mom um, was a painter, uh, a, a fabric textile designer. So she had a business um, that was always struggling, but but she kept on for years um, painting, hand painting fabric like for upholstery. 
Uh, yeah. And, and so that, so there was always a lot of creativity and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. We always had lots of like art supplies in our house and, and encouragement to be creative. And we were not allowed to use the word bored. Um, that was like one of my mom's real, <laughs> real, uh, no, yes. no work. And yeah. she had a bit of a show background also. Yeah, she did. She, um, when she was young, when she was in her late teens, early twenties, she moved to Hawaii for a while, right after high school and, um, and acted as a stunt surfer, which means that you're the person who, yeah, who climbs on top of a surfer's shoulders and you do like stunts, you stand up there and you kind of flip around and, um, yeah. And she had done, she had just kind of been, she was a really vibrant, uh, sort of loud, performative person in general. So that, that she had always been kind of a, a, a larger than life personality. And I was a really shy, quiet kid. So we were we were quite a contrasting pair. <laughs> Very interesting. Tessa, you have both an MFA and a PhD in creative writing. And some writers struggle with the decision to seek a formal writing education while others just jump right in. Maybe not a master's, but I've been, I've met many writers throughout my life who have never taken as much as a creative writing class. What influenced your decision to not only formalize your writing education, but to take it as far as a PhD? Yeah. Um, well, just a tiny point of clarification. I actually am I'm not, I'm almost finished with the PhD. Okay, so I have sure. like 9.5 of a PhD, but okay. we'll just <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult decision and, um, it was not something that I ever considered really, um, until I was a, a number of years outside of college, outside of my undergraduate. And, um, I, I think that there are, are, there are so many people who, as you say, like make great stories and great books, um, without going through a formal education. But for me, what happened was, um, I, yeah, I had graduated college and I had been, I had moved to New York city. I worked for a couple of years there and was, and was acting and performing some, and then, um, moved back to California and, and was working. And, um, and I was always writing that whole time, always writing. And, and I think just so much of what you know about the world comes from the people that you surround yourself with. Um, and I had never been around writers, not, not professional writers, not people who taught writing. I didn't study it in undergrad. And so kind of fortuitously, I met um, a couple of people in San Francisco who had MFAs and who had, who had done that. And I didn't even know that existed. And they were like, oh yeah, it's just this degree that you get where you go study writing full time and many of them are funded. So you, you get paid to be there and you just get to do that for a few years. And then if you want, you can teach writing after. Um, and that was a totally game changing realization for me. I just didn't know that that was a possibility. Uh, and so I was kind of just jumping around between a lot of jobs that didn't really feel good and was working really hard and feeling like I was kind of just spinning on a gerbil wheel. And so um, applied to some MFA programs and, and realized that I could just read and write and teach all the time and, and, and not go into debt. And, and, and that would, that was something I could choose to do. And so, uh, it really was an easy decision for me. Um, yeah. One of the great things about these programs is, uh, I, I really can't think of many other ways that writers can really immerse themselves in those communities of writers, in a in a structured way and yeah 
Absolutely. We're yeah. around them all the time and exchanging information yeah. and ideas and reading each other's work on a on a regular basis and and yeah, writing and about writing about literature also. Yes. And over the course of a longer period of time. So you get to like check in with these people and exchange work and, and ideas over the course of years, you know, whether you're in a residency program or a low res. And so I think that is a, a pretty great gift too, that, you know, you get to sort of develop together. Um, and certainly my writing, writing buddies from my MFA and PhD are my long-term writing buddies. They're still my writing partners and the people that I exchange work with. So you, you get to, you know, form some pretty wonderful communities and, and friendships through those programs. Has your primary focus in the programs been nonfiction? No, um, I have a, I have a kind of a, kind of a silly, um, genre journey actually, um, so yeah, I mean, I was I was after college, I was really kind of focusing on playwriting. I, I mentioned that I was acting, so I was writing my own one woman one woman plays and performing those, um, and also writing poetry. And so I actually applied to MFA programs in poetry. So I got in in poetry and and got to the MFA I chose. And then after a semester there, it was like I think I'm a narrative writer, <laughs> <laughs> and so I switched to fiction. And so I actually got my MFA in fiction. Um, and then uh, applied to PhD programs in fiction, and then got to this PhD program, and immediately was like, I think I'm going to write this nonfiction book. And so um, I've I've sort of just woven between genres, and and now after um, this memoir is out, and now I'm uh, just kind of working on finishing up a novel. So I've sort of uh, journeyed back to fiction. So um, yeah, That's exciting. I, I blend all over the place. Uh, yeah. uh, excellent. Can you tell our listeners about what you might consider? Considered to be uh, the big break in your professional writing career. Many might assume that it's the publication of your book, but the writing journey is quite long, and perhaps you can shed some light on this. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it is quite long, exactly as you say, and um, I think most people you know, you are, you are writing and revising and reading and perhaps submitting work for years before a book ever enters the realm of possibility. Um, so I started submitting writing as soon as I got to, um, Alabama, which is where I did my MFA University of Alabama. And, um, in some ways it was like, I, I think I was directed by things that were happening outside of me in part. Um, I was writing a lot of story, short stories, um, and submitting some of those. And they weren't really, they weren't, you know, if every now and then one would get published or I would get good feedback on them, but I didn't ever feel like home in them. I didn't ever feel like I kind like quite got it. Um, and at the same time, I just started writing, um, essays. I took this like mini nonfiction class for like a one day nonfiction class. And I wrote an essay for it. And the teacher at the end of it, who was an outside visiting professor was like, I want to publish this in my literary magazine. And I was like, Oh my God. All right. And then the next essay I wrote got, um, solicited for a very big, uh, for creative nonfiction, which is very big nonfiction magazine. So I, I think just like this force outside of me, I just got very lucky with those two and it made me pay more attention to nonfiction. Um, and so in doing so, I kind of recognized that, um, I was able to sort of make sense of the questions I wanted to explore um, a little bit more easily in there. So I don't, I wouldn't, I don't actually think that there's a moment that I feel like I had a big break or that it was just like 
over the course of a, a number of years, continually writing as much as possible, writing all the time, finishing pieces, sometimes sending them out, sometimes not, um, but just practicing and practicing and practicing so that by the time I um, had this book that I was working on and, and, you know, was sending that to, to agents and stuff, um, I knew how to, you know, like this agent um, who, uh, the agent that I ended up choosing, she was like, okay, well, I want to see the next, I, I sent her about 180 pages of the book and she was kind of like, okay, well, I want to see the next, you know, I want you to finish it. So send me the next, you know, hundred pages or whatever. And I knew because I had done so much of it before, like I knew how to form chapters. I knew how to kind of, you know, make the narrative continue and how to make many pieces work together. And, and so I think if I had not had all of that time of, of writing shorter pieces before that, I, I would have been overwhelmed and, and lost. Is there one genre that really has your heart more than the other? Um, I don't think I, I don't think I could pick a favorite. Um, I think that nonfiction comes more naturally to me. Uh, but because of that, like fiction is like the, the boyfriend who won't date me. And so <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always chasing after. That's so, um, so, I mean, certainly prose <laughs> in general, certainly prose uh -huh. is, uh, fits best for me, but yeah. Writers often struggle with ideas that would sustain a, a book-length project. And having sat in on one of your lectures, I recall that you, you referenced that as writers, we should, quote, follow our obsessions. And I remember you talked a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Can you expand a little bit on, on this and how writers can and should dig deeper to find those stories that war warrant a longer narrative? Yeah, absolutely. Um I think that this is really one of the key sort of key entry points into finding stories that can sustain longer narratives. And the reason is um, the things that we are obsessed with, they, they're oftentimes like a wellspring of, of unending um, uh, interest and passion and confusion and also tangents. There are so many little branches that form off of an obsession, like questions that you have to ask once you have one this other question answered. Um, and so it just enables for an expansive piece. And I, I guess the reason that I like that word obsession is because um, we use it sometimes, like, like I remember kind of being young and, um, I remember kids like kids kind of getting down on each other for being like, Oh, this, this guy's obsessed with Pokemon. So weird. Or like, like that, that it's weird if you are kind of all in on something and something that you can't exactly explain why you're all in on. And I think that's what often happens with obsession. We don't exactly know why we can't stop thinking about this thing or learning about this thing or whatever it is. Um, and we might have an idea, but there's in its core, there's kind of an inexplicable black hole that we can't, help always barreling toward. Uh, and so I think finding, finding something like that, that is genuinely fascinating and, and compelling and complicated um, for, for an individual writer is going to yield such a better book than saying like, well, this is the thing that I think should be interesting or would sell right now, or, you know, whatever the kind of outside reasons to write about something are, because that's going to lack that sort of, um, zing and emotion and uh the the inner kind of I don't know like magic that makes a book really great to read mm -hmm. when I read your story I was struck by how you were really indeed prepared for life with performers 
so the obsession of, I think, just to look at the book on its face and say, well, she was obsessed with getting involved with a, a traveling sideshow. I thought you actually had exposure to lots of performers and creatives throughout your life. You talked about your childhood and your mom would take you to drum circles and she had lots of creatives in her life and she was a former performer. I had to wonder if maybe what, what you had sought was a sense of family. And so the sideshow folks really weren't all that much of a culture shock. Um, what might have attracted you was really the sense of community and family. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that right. Being around people who, um, I think even maybe more particular for me, people who identify as being outside of the mainstream, um, who kind of are outside of, um, a, a community that most people find, um, comfortable, like are quote unquote weird, which is, which is absolutely the community I grew up in and, um, and is absolutely the, um, community of the sideshow. I would not say that I was not culture shocked. I was absolutely culture shocked and I was, sh and I was continually shocked all the way through, but I don't think that that is a bad thing. No, I mean, any, not at all. Anytime you're entering a new world that is that specific in particular, it's going to be a lot of new information. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly was, um, drawn to uh, a group of people who were forming a strange, um, community outside of, outside of kind of the norm, outside of the regular community. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the inception of the electric woman, you join the sideshow and you talk about throughout, throughout the time where you're, you're there, you're taking copious notes. And I've read, uh, through some other interviews with you that you really thought you were going to write about the sideshow. And then something happened where you started to lean into the idea of weaving in your mother's story. Can you recall that, that moment when you started mm -hmm. to consider that? Yeah, I can, I can. Um, and I was so resistant to it. Um, I, I thought that I was going to write like, yeah, more sort of of a, a, of a journalistic account of the sideshow. Um, and, you know, perhaps include myself as a character in there, like immersion journalism. Um, but, but not include so much, uh, about my family. And, um, I, I guess sort of two things happened. Um, one of which is that, uh, when I actually was looking back, so so as I was out with the sideshow, I was um, writing essays, like notes from the road, essentially, that I was publishing uh, while I was out there. And those essays included both information about the side, you know, but, but there were both notes about the sideshow and had a, some pieces about my family in there. Not much, just like little, little tiny pieces in there. And so I somehow thought that like once I was done with the sideshow that I would get rid of that thread and just really focus on what was important. Um, but as I began doing that and writing out the, the draft of, um, of kind of more intense focus on the sideshow, it, it really started to, well, not fall flat. I was going to say fall flat. It's not that it fell flat. It's that I, as a narrator, felt so distanced from what I was seeing and doing. And it, it seemed like there was just this like chasm of um, one, maybe judgment and two, uh, this, I wasn't revealing any information about myself. And I think for us to trust our narrator, we often have to know whose hands are in and what they're doing there. And I couldn't find a way to talk about what I was doing there um, without, sort of starting to spill some of this story. 
And so in my initial, uh, the initial draft of the book, when I, when I decided to put in a little bit of the story of my family story to try to, um, make sense of what I was doing there. Um, once I started doing that, then you can't just kind of like dabble in little pieces of high drama without going there. And so my editor, that was one of the things I worked on a lot with my editor because she was kind of like, you can't just have this throwaway line where you say like, my mom and I had a really contentious relationship. Like that doesn't work in a book to explain what that means to you. So if you're going to have this in here, you have to have it in there and you have to honor your reader enough to like, give us some scenes, show us what you're talking about. And, and if that feels like it's, it's an important part of, um, you know, not only why you were in the sideshow, but, but really what it became to me is understanding ways that people, uh, come up against fear and pain and bravery. And so once I started thinking about the story like that, then the two narratives um, felt totally intertwined for me. But there was a lot of, I had a lot of resistance. And um, part of the reason is that I think memoir is uh, still pretty looked down upon. Um, it's not kind of considered as, um, as like a high literary form among, especially like among the um, kind of graduate programs I was in. And so I felt kind of embarrassed and unsure and like, why should I write a memoir? I'm only, you know, 32 or whatever it was <laughs> at the time. Um, and so, yeah, it took me a long time. It actually took me um, kind of learning more about the genre of memoir and the history of memoir and, and the reason that it's not valued in such a way, which is primarily that it's considered to be a, a portion of women's literature. It's considered to be like the realm of domestic stories and women's stories and trauma. And so that, once I started learning about that, then I was like, oh, I'm going to own this. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. own this genre. This, I support this a hundred percent. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You're, your mom was always pushing back against the idea of ordinary and I just stories that are in the book. One that comes to mind is she was just going to retheme Christmas. Mm -hmm. Y'all were going to have Christmas and she was going to rebrand it yes. and do something <laughs> different. And, um, you also wrote, it just, it also came it came to my mind, I had read one of your nonfiction essays called After Losing My Mom, I Didn't Know How to Be a Bride. And you talk about all these wonderful, well-intentioned relatives and friends wanting to help you pick out your wedding dress. But what you really wanted was to be with your mom, go to a thrift shop and pick out an interesting secondhand dress. And there's a great line in your book where your mom says, do you kids know what's no fun? We shook our heads, everything ordinary, she says. And I just saw it, it reminded me of the essay when I read that line. And I just, I wondered, do you think as writers that we need to push back against what is ordinary in order for us to find something interesting? Or is it the other way around where we should really look at the ordinary in mind? What is interesting? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and I don't know that there is a correct answer. I mean, I, th I think that both of those things are potentially true. Although, although maybe both they, both of them actually can achieve the same thing, which is that, um, to be outside of the ordinary, you also have to understand pretty deeply what the ordinary is. Um, and then, and then how you define yourself outside of that. And, and I think the same is true on the other side. Um, I've never been, there are some writers who are just like exceptional at writing pieces about, 
um, sort of like the everyday life of, you know, suburban teenagers or, you know, growing up kind of um, white and privileged and middle class and like people who are really investigating um, the sort of, you know, most kind of mainstream, ordinary, like the way that American, you know, American culture, I guess, has you understand ordinary to be. There are a lot of writers who are really good at doing that. Um, I have never been very good at doing that. And and probably in large part is because I, I grew up in a, in a pretty different environment, as you're pointing out. Um, and so to me, I think, uh, I, I think part of the transition for me was in um, understanding that what the way in which I grew up was, was different than a lot of people. Um, because, you know, whatever environment you grow up in, you think that that is normal. You, that's all, you know, that's, that's what you think everybody else does. And so I remember getting to, um, a little bit getting to high school and then especially getting to college and understanding that, like, other people hadn't been, you know, given drugs by their community members when they were pretty young or, you know, just the things that you sort of think are just part of what it is to be a kid don't turn out to be part of what it means to be a kid for other people. Um, so I think whatever place you come from, um, being, being very clear about like, uh, looking at the thing, either where you are or sort of the alternative, right? Looking at the ordinary or looking at the, the unordinary and, and kind of seeing the pieces for what they are can be uh, really helpful. There's some writing exercise that I, that I think is pretty great, which is like you pick something really banal, something really ordinary, like, a, you know, like going grocery shopping, for example, and you have to write about it. Um, as if you are an alien who, who has just landed on Earth from outer space. And so you don't know what any of the things are. You have no, you know, reference point. And so it, it creates like a sense of making things that you don't, that your brain just doesn't even process because we're so used to looking at them and thinking about them. It's a way of making everything unordinary. And I think that kind of exercise is really, really excellent um, for, for sort of making things seem strange which everything is strange really right and I bring up that essay because I know that the heart of it was wanting to have the experience with your mom it wasn't so much about picking out something that was unusual but your it I thought it spoke to the girl that you had become in her home um, it spoke to your aesthetic it spoke to your uh, artistic aesthetic and your um, who you are as a person and as an artist and somebody who would who would want something out of the norm because that's that's where you come from yeah yeah absolutely I think I mean I think that's absolutely the heart of the piece it's all of the and, and I mean I think a wedding is like the most one of the most extreme examples we have of people kind of trying to shove down your throat like these are the things that are part of this ritual. Yes, this and has so, to happen. And if you hear yeah. from the norm it's not right. So Yeah. And other people will be disappointed and uncomfortable. And so yeah, it's a it's a particularly fraught place to try to figure out how you um can fit into that or not fit into that, you know, however you navigate it, I guess. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'd like to hear in your words, uh, and you touched on this a little bit, there wasn't, you don't see that there's any one uh, big break or anything like that, but are there some key moments that really stand out on this writing journey so far that an aspiring writer might 
glean something from, that these were things that made a difference in this journey, whether it was t signing up for a program, whether it was committing to writing the memoir, uh, whether it was saying yes to going to Chris, Chris's invitation <laughs> to join the sideshow. One that when, when you first said that, the first thing that came to mind is actually, um, it doesn't have anything to do with writing at all. And it was, um, I was in a relationship that, um, which just was, it was not a good relationship. It was an, it was an unhealthy situation. And, um, and I was pretty ready, but I, for, you know, various reasons felt kind of stuck in it. And I was really, I was really getting pretty ready to just say like, okay, well, you know, it's not perfect. And, but like, I think this is just what I need to do and, you know, marry this person and, and, and kind of stay in it. And this is before I, I went to graduate school at all or studied writing more formally. Um, and, and I don't know that there was like a singular moment, although I have this memory of, um, of, of going to a reading in San Francisco, like a book reading. I don't even, I don't know who it was. I, there was not like a particular line that I remember, but this thing just started forming in my brain. That was like the hardest choice right now would be to get out of this relationship. But what it would mean is, is I would feel like this door was open and I could go do a thing that I would really want to do that I know I couldn't do with this person. And so, um, in some way it was like making a choice, you know, making a, a selfish choice sort of, instead of like kind of taking care of this person, which I thought I needed to do. I, I ended the relationship and immediately one immediately applied to grad to MFA programs and then, um, had saved up a lot of money at that point. And so just bought a ticket to Vietnam and just went and traveled for a few months while I was waiting to hear about, um, my MFA program. So like sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I think you just like feel like you're in a position where you can't, like it's too hard, it's too fraught to get out of something that's not great. Um, and so it, it gives you an excuse to not do the thing that you want to do. And for me, it was, you know, to not write and to not kind of see where that could take me. Uh, and so, yeah, that was a, that was a really important moment and, and really made me feel like this door was opened, um, that I could kind of follow on my own for a long time. Um, and another moment is definitely, I mean, of course, like joining the sideshow saying yes to that and, and some of, and, and, and that, and, and maybe a few other actually like, you know, smaller stories that I wrote before, um, have to do with like kind of split second, just saying yes to the thing that happens, like, like not really questioning it that much and just kind of saying like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go do that thing. I'll try that thing. Um, and I mean, being in an uncomfortable situation is a gift for a writer. It, it always is a gift. There's always something that can come out of it, uh, which is not to say that it's always a pleasant experience or like one that you want to keep having, but, um, there's something that interesting that it always means is, is going on and something to write about. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I guess a lot of the moments come down to, um, saying yes, taking a risk, um, kind of stepping into what's often a un really uncomfortable place, um, a place of loneliness, sometimes a place of isolation temporarily, but then that kind of leading to, um, a, a path that is full of, uh, full of wonderful things and wonderful stories. I was impressed with uh, the amount of notes that you took while you were part of this show because y'all were very busy. Uh, there was the hours were crazy, 
And yet, this book is dense with really good uh, notes and specific things that occurred on an hourly basis while you were part of this show. Did the people around you know that you were writing a memoir? Did they know that you had intentions on writing a memoir? And if they were aware of that, did you ever feel that they were guarded? It doesn't come out like that in the book. Everybody seems like they want to share uh, their stories and they're comfortable around you. But were they all aware of what you were working on? Um. Yeah, I mean, so I was not aware that I was working on a memoir. Um, I had no idea at that point. Um, but I did know that I wanted to write about the sideshow in some capacity. So they knew that I was a writer and that I was taking notes and that I was hoping to write something about the sideshow. Um, and I, I felt, you know, there are a lot of different ethical takes on when you are doing immersion writing, like whether you tell the people that you're, you know, a writer or not. And, and that's like a whole long ethical conversation. But um, I felt for me like I did want them to know that that I was doing that. Um, so yes, everybody knew. Um, I, you know, I, I let them know. And then I didn't necessarily like remind them of it all the time. Like I didn't, I didn't want it to be something that, you know, continually came up as a point of separation or like I was not participating because I was just studying them or something because, you know, I had to work as hard as everybody else did. And there were many, of course, many hundreds of pages of notes that didn't make it into the book. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's really, in some ways, it's like, I think if you have a really busy life, it's the same kind of thing, which is like, it would be very easy not to do it. But if you decide or, you know, make a make sort of a schedule for yourself or, you know, somehow just force it into your life, you do. So before I would go to bed, you know, it would be maybe two in the morning, I would be like almost dead tired, but I would just jot down, you know, five things that I remembered from that day. Um, or I would wake up just a little bit earlier than everyone else. I think I did this more than writing at night, just wake up a little bit earlier and, um, just again, just like write out whatever I could remember. Um, and at first I was, I was trying to do it in such a way that they were, you know, like really well explained paragraphs and, you know, kind of good writing. And then as the season went on, it was just like, just any pieces of dialogue and information and specifics, um, that I could get down. And the other piece was that, um, so the days were incredibly long and busy. Um, but, there's always these few minutes backstage between acts throughout the day. So you're on stage for five minutes and you're backstage for two minutes and on stage for six minutes and backstage for four minutes. And so I always had my phone backstage with me. And so um, I just used the notes app in, in the phone and just took a ton of notes on my phone, just in between things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have time set aside that I could do it, but I just, um, I just kind of forced it partly because I think when you're writing about other people, um, you have an ethical obligation to be correct. You can't, you know, I don't, I didn't want to invent dialogue for people as much as I could help it. Um, I didn't want to, you know, just guess on kind of what had happened. So, uh, yeah, I, I tried. <laughs> Excellent. Do you have some good writing habits that you would impart on listeners and your students? Yeah. Like you're working um, on a novel now when you're working mm -hmm. on a novel. Some people work in, in uh, they write every single day when they're working on a novel. Some might have a certain type of schedule that works for them. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do. And, and I have to be pretty rigorous about it because, um, I will very, if I give myself any excuses not to write, I will not write because it is hard. Writing is hard and often frustrating. And there are always other things you can convince yourself you need to do. Um, so a couple things, one of the most important things for me, and this seems like so silly, but it's so real for me is that, um, either the night before when I'm going to bed or first thing when I wake up, I just turn my Wi-Fi off of my computer. I turn the internet off and I know that I, that I, I'm not going to turn it on, um, until it's, it's usually three hours later, but you know, depending on the day, maybe one hour later, maybe longer, whatever. Um, so I, I turn my Wi-Fi off so that I don't have any access to, emails or whatever the million other things that come up that you need to do in a day are. Um, and then I have a piece of paper or a notebook always by my computer that when I remember this thing that if I had my internet on, I would just go, Oh, really quickly. I need to look this up and call the vet or whatever. I just jot it down on a piece of paper so that then when I'm done with my writing session, I'm not trying to remember those things as I'm writing. I have this list and it's just, it's just like it, it allows me to be able to keep concentrating on my work. Um, so yeah, I, I am a kind of an everyday writer or most days, um, as many days as I can. Um, and I write in the mornings. Usually I have, yeah, the mornings work for me and also like an early evening for a couple of hours works for me. Um, in the afternoon, my brain is just like runny eggs and it's, <laughs> I have to do other kinds of work at that, at that time. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty consistent. Um, one other thing that I think can be really helpful for it's been really helpful for me, and I know it's been helpful for other writers too, is to um, is to actually come up with a contract uh, between yourself and uh, usually a writer friend, or it can be a couple of people. And there's a great article that um, Amy Bender wrote, and it's published uh, online on Oprah's Magazine online, and she talks about this legal legally binding contract that she creates with her writing partner. And they use all this legal jargon, and it's really funny. She has a copy of the contract up there that you can use and adapt for yourself. And you basically like make a contract that you say you you put in your specific requirements. So uh, my writing partner and I, we made one of these, and we would say like, okay, you know, five days a week each day, I'm gonna write a thousand words, and then you can have caveats like with the caveat that you know, one day a week, it can be 500 words, you know, if the thousand words doesn't come or you have, you know, three days a month where you get past days, if something else comes up or, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, one day a week, I'm going to write for two hours, whatever it is that can kind of match with your life. But uh, when you fulfill that contract for that day, whatever it is, you just send an email or a text to the other person that just says done. Oh, wow or check. So you don't have to, you don't send them the work. You don't have to, you know, but you just are constantly back and forth with each other. And it's just like this tiny amount of accountability to another person. Um, that for me has been really helpful and, and makes me feel like, like if I get her, like a text comes in with Annie's done and I'm not done yet, then I'm like, Oh God, I gotta do it. <laughs> can't let her down. We can't break this email chain yeah. of our done. Right. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. That's great advice. So what upcoming projects do you have going on? Yeah. I know the electric woman is out in paperback. It is. It's out in paperback. Um, so I've been, uh, I did a, almost a full year of, of touring with the hardcover, which was um, really fun and got to meet a lot of great readers and, and 
booksellers and librarians and stuff. And um, yeah, so the paper, the paperback's out and um, I do a lot of teaching gigs. So um, I just finished teaching yesterday at a conference and I'm leaving tomorrow to go teach in another MFA program for a few days. So I'm always bouncing around those. Um, but I'm finishing this novel, working on this novel. Um, and so that's been a big project. And then I have a list of essays that I want to get to. Um, and one that's already in progress. So I like to keep a couple of things going um, at the same time, even if there's one that I set away for a while, um, so that if I, you know, for example, send a draft of this to my agent and I have to wait a few weeks to hear back, I'm not just like sitting around biting my nails. I'm like immediately working on something else. And it kind of takes away the preciousness of the thing that you're, you know, waiting on. You're just, you know, that you're always going to be able to write more and work on better things and, and try to, you know, make something that keeps you um, creative and productive and, and thinking, thinking sort of deeply and broadly about the things that you are obsessed with or questions you have. This is great advice. And for our listeners that want to keep up with what you're doing, they can visit your website? Yep, absolutely. Uh, TessaFontaine.com. There's, um, you can sign up to be on the contact list, or I have always on there a schedule of um, places where I'm giving readings and, and teaching and stuff. So I'm always happy to hear from writers and readers and, um, and yeah, just connect with other folks out there who love doing the same thing that I love doing. And I'll tell our listeners that if they visit the Writers Constellation Facebook page, they will find this episode show notes and you can find information and links about this episode and we'll link Tessa's website there. And this is great. Thank you so much, Tessa, for sharing your time and sharing your journey with our listeners. And it's just uh, been a real privilege to get to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Francis. And your, your questions were so thoughtful and I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Writer's Constellation. Written, produced, and hosted by Francis Susanna Neville. Audio producer, Emmanuel Elliott. The Writer's Constellation theme music is composed by Isaac Barzo. All show notes and links mentioned in this episode can be found on our Facebook page. We are the Writer's Constellation on all platforms. Thank you for listening, and remember, what connects the light tells the story.